turn now to the second reading, which is Deuteronomy chapter 25. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 1. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. If there be a controversy between men, and they come unto judgment, that the judges may judge them, then uh, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it shall be, if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile unto thee. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child... The wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her unto him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead and uh, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, Then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto the man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. When men strive together one with another and the wife of one draweth nearer For to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him, and putteth forth her hand, and taketh him by the secrets, then thou shalt cut off her hand, thine eye shall not pity her. Thou shalt not have in thy bag diverse weights, a great and a small. Thou shalt not have in thine house diverse measures, a great and a small. But thou shalt have a perfect And just weight, a perfect and just measure, shalt thou have, that thy days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. For all that do such things, and all that do unrighteously, are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. Remember what Amalek did unto thee by the way, when ye were come forth out of Egypt, how he met thee by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, when thou wast faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be, when the Lord thy God hath given thee rest from all thine enemies round about, in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not 
forget it. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. All right. Verses 1 through 3, we have a controversy in judgment. A couple of things. First of all, notice the use of the terms here. This was very instrumental for both Luther and Calvin as they both understood our own justification not to be something that we earned, but something that was declared on our behalf. Listen very carefully and you'll hear the same thing here. Notice what it says. What shall the judges do? They shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. To justify on the one hand and to condemn on the other are both legal terms pertaining to what takes place in foro legis, right? In the, in, before the law, okay? So in the sight of the law, one can be justified or one can be condemned. Now we know because of imperfect justice that we have in this world that it is possible for us to justify the unrighteous and to condemn the righteous. That's possible. In fact, we probably have heard news reports of things like that happening. You know, people go free because there's a technicality. And so the, the guilty, the wicked, are justified as if they were innocent. But that's what it means to be justified. It doesn't mean actually to be righteous necessarily. What it means is to be declared innocent before the court. Now, when the judges receive a case before them, they are to do their absolute best to judge righteous judgment such that they justify those who are not guilty. They justify the righteous and they condemn the wicked. We know that they might get it wrong. But we see the difference, don't we? God doesn't justify us, beloved, because we're truly righteous. He justifies us because Christ is righteous and his righteousness is imputed to us by faith alone apart from our works. And so, it can, and so the apostle can tell us in his argument, in his gospel argument, in the second half of 3, chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Romans, that God justifies the ungodly. Yet he does so in perfect divine justice because he has received on our behalf the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is imputed or reckoned to us, just as it was to Abraham, as we read in Genesis chapter 15 and Romans chapter 4. We'll find the same thing in Hebrews 11, by the way, pertaining to Abel and pertaining to, to, uh, to Noah, pertaining to Enoch, pertaining to Moses, and so on. Okay? But notice the difference in the terms. And this is an important point. We, we, have, we have such distrust these days of our legal judgments that we'll hear something like this. We, we know how this works. We'll say, oh, well, he was declared not guilty. Oh, but is he really not guilty? And we go down that road, don't we? Why? Because we know the imperfection of human judgment. But when God imputes the righteousness of Christ to a believer, he is declared righteous at that point by the, as we heard earlier, the Lord God of truth. He is constituted righteous in God's sight. Okay. Secondly, notice that the punishments that a judge must give are tempered by the presence of the judge. And you've heard me speak on this before. This is something that you you can really get me worked up about if you want. All you got to do is mention it, and I'll just start getting worked up. Here's what happens. It says here that when the wicked man is punished for his, his, his wickedness, 
that he is to be beaten before the judge. The judge has to be there when those stripes are given to him so that he can see the, the punishment that he has inflicted and its effects. And you can't go beyond 40, right? Paul says, thrice I received from the Jews, 40 save one, because the Jews always put a fence there, right? So they would only give 39 wax with the, with the rod. But here, you can only give him 40, because if you give him more than 40, your brother will become vile in your eyes. Okay. Vile means contemptible. He'll become contemptible before you. Either that contemptible estate of his arises out of his being beaten to a pulp, or he's contemptible because you've treated him like a dog with so many stripes. Okay? All right. So this is the biblical way of doing things, that the judge should be there, and that he should be there while the entire punishment is administered, and then the man is what? He's free. Think of this for a moment, beloved. He's not going to be vile. Why? Because he has given up his body to the punishment, to the lumps that he's supposed to get. And then he says, I'm done with that. And he can go back to his farm, back to his village, back to his job, back to providing for his family, and so on. What do we do instead? What does the government of our states and United States do? Rather, what we do is we punish him out of the sight of the judge who issues the sentence and then is not bothered with him as he's shuttled off to jail for 40 years. And then when we let him out at the end of 40 years, he is absolutely vile in our sight. We have completely turned him into a contemptible mess. And he will never be finished with his punishment. Beloved, Look how wise God is, even as he condescends to us to give us civil understanding. And we should rise up from a passage like this as believers in God and demand justice in our land, according to our place and station, that we might be able to see punishments exhibited in the civil realm that are more in keeping with this kind of thing where we don't make criminals vile, we put them back to their responsibilities so that they can be done with their crime. They have satisfied the civil uh, punishment of it, and now they can go back and become productive once again. Oh, for magistrates like that. Oh, for men that would read the Bible. This is why the king in Israel had to have a copy of the law and read it all the days of his life. Right? Verses 1 through 3. Number 4. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox... That treadeth out the corn. <coughs> Here we learn that from 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that there's a general equity principle here, even in this most obscure law. <coughs> Excuse me. What is muzzling the ox when he treads out the corn? Maybe. <clears throat> Children, you, you've watched a, a period movie of the ancient Near East. And they'll be inside this room. And somebody will bring in either a bag full or a cart full of grain that they've just picked. And they've been out in the winnowing floor. And they've winnowed this grain. So all of the chaff is gone. They've got the pure wheat there. <clears throat> and they have this great big stone. 
and it's being pulled around this post by an ox where they've set this grain and that grain by that stone is being ground. The, 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 the injunction here is that when you have an ox pulling that stone and grinding your grain, that you will not muzzle him so he can't eat. He's got to be able to eat while he's doing that. Okay. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and Paul says this. Does God take care for oxen? You think God wrote a law for an ox? You think the law of God applies to oxen? He says no, it doesn't. That's the rhetorical question and the answer to it. Really what he's saying is that the laborer is worthy of his hire and he will apply that especially to the dumb ox of a minister that someone might have so that they might be cared for in their ministerial labors. Okay? And that's by... That interpretation is not mine. That's the Apostle Paul's. All right, move on then. So now we have the law of the leveret. Most of our forefathers in the faith uh, will say that the law of the leveret, leveret was a ceremonial law, and it was attached to the land. And so we're no longer doing that today. This is a law that is passed away. Yes, there's a general equity principle. And this plays out, say, in the life of James Henley Thornwell. When uh, Thornwell was eight years old, his father died. His mother was taken into his uncle's house, where she provided for the household, uh, not as a wife, but just as a single lady. And so she helped to provide for the household where she and Dr. Thornwell lived while he was in his formative years. All right, so there's a general equity principle there. But the principle that is being described here is that so, is so any brother that dies prematurely before he raises up children himself or before he has any children might continue his name and his family's name and his tract of land in Israel because Israel as a land was a type of their heavenly inheritance. And so it was the brother's job to raise up seed to his deceased brother so that they would have Uh, that family would continue in Israel and a name would not die out in Israel. Okay, so that's, that's why this is important in their day, but not in our day. Yet the general equity principle uh, remains of taking family members into your home and caring for them when they would be destitute. Um, <clears throat> where this comes to almost am- amusing relief is in Ruth chapter 4. Because in Ruth chapter 4, we'll remember that Boaz was not the near kinsman of Ruth. There was someone nearer than him. And so, what is his name? Do you remember? No, you don't remember. You know why you don't remember? Because he refused to raise up seed for his brother, and so his name is forgotten. Uh, He shall be called the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. Remember when Boaz calls him when he walks by, he says, Ho, such a one, come over here. His name is never mentioned in the text because of what is written here in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And so he remains nameless in the passage. And Ruth and Boaz as a couple give birth to Obed, who gives birth to Jesse, who gives birth to David, who will give birth to Messiah. Their names will be remembered forever. Interesting, right? Okay, so now we move on from there. And we have verses 11 and 12. 
kind of a difficult one in mixed company. But let me say this, that God cares so much with regard to procreation and the having of children that that kind of defense is not permitted. It is not permitted. And to fence that properly with no permiso, with, not, with no permission to do that, the, the lady that defends her husband in that way will have her hand cut off. So that's not something that you can do. You will not risk uh, rendering someone infertile. You will not risk that. Now we come to uh, verses 13 through 16. We have the diverse weights, great and small and so on. We've talked about those things before. That is simply uh, a statement of uprightness. It's a statement of the third, the ninth, and the eighth commandment. Right? Because to have false weights is to tell a lie. To have a, a, you know, I've got my weights over here when I buy, and I've got my weights over here when I sell. No, that's sin. Right? And what does the Lord call it? All who do such things, all that do unrighteously, are an abomination to the Lord thy God. So the Lord abominates that. And then finally, in verses 17 through 19, we have Amalek. And there's something that the Lord will remember about Amalek. Do you remember what it was? That they refused to do battle with Israel by a frontal assault. Rather, they went around behind and picked off the old, the young, and the infirm. And the Lord says, you're going to remember that about Amalek. And when the time is right, you're going to wipe him off the face of the earth. Because he sought to destroy the weak among my people. He did war in a cowardly way. <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble. I know I am. That seems to be the only way we do war these days. In this cowardly way. Rather than rising up, soldier to soldier, force against force. No, we hide behind civilians. We have unmanned vehicles going off and picking people out. And so on. Beloved, we need to be very cautious in the way we make war. There is an upright way to war as a nation. There's an upright means and there's an upright reason to go to war. The fog of war was never something that was ever to take place in Israel. Normally when we say the fog of war, what do we mean by that? The moral fog that comes over the command and the army. That was never to take place in Israel. Soldiers were soldiers of the Lord. And they were always to be that. And they were to do, they were to make war in a way that they might quit themselves as soldiers of their God for their nation. Right? We heard that just last week. Okay. With that then, let's stand and continue praying.